couple of weeks to do a different topic matter, and then we're going to come back to the parables, and that will run us up to probably Thanksgiving as we look at the latter part of uh, Matthew's gospel and some of the parables that pop up there. Just kind of give you an idea of where we're going. It's like, I feel like I've been in the parables forever, right? But, uh, but we're going to take a pause here in a couple of weeks and then um, come back to them. Um, our text for today, uh, well, last week, we're actually part two of, of the parable. So last week, we looked at the parable of the prodigal son. If you remember, the word prodigal is not a term that Jesus ever uses when he's describing uh, this younger son. He refers to him as younger, he refers to him as dead, and he refers to him as lost. But Jesus never re- uses the word prodigal. The word prodigal came somewhere in the church history. Somebody thought that the uh, prodigal son, the word actually means wasteful, so it's the story of the wasteful son. Um, so somebody applied that title to this parable, and it stuck. Uh, through the years. So anyhow, that's where we're at. So last week we looked at the younger son. Uh, This week we're going to look at the older son or the older brother. Our text comes from Luke chapter 15. We'll be reading verses 1 and 2. These verses are not part of the parable. This is this this forms the occasion, the reason why Jesus tells these three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. So I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet uh, Luke, Romans, Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Here we go. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You may be seated. So what I'd like to do, first is get some water. Um, but what I'd like to do is to kind of give some of the context. I skipped over this last week. Um, and so I want to go ahead and spend a little bit of time with us this week. So the context, the, what it, what, what's going on uh, behind the scenes that prompts Jesus to want to share these parables. So we'll spend a little bit of time um, establishing the context. Let's take a look at this, verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear the Lord Jesus. I've got a slide for you here. And this slide shows you the Greek term amartolos. Amartolos is the Greek word that translates into our word sinners. It means preeminently sinful. So somebody who comes to the table and they're just full of uh, sinfulness. Um, and it's also somebody who we might, who the, in the Greek anyhow describes it as especially wicked. Um, this term was used in the first century as a label. Uh, we have a modern vernacular word that we use to refer to people like this. We might refer to them as heathens. Somebody who's just especially wicked. Somebody who's just given themselves over to sin. This is someone who lacks a conscience. And if they, or if they ever did have a conscience, that conscience had fallen asleep long ago. These are people who steal without hesitation. These are people who lust without reservation. These are people who gossip, who cheat, and take advantage of other people. Their only deterrent to misbehavior is getting caught. Their only deterrent to misbehavior is, well, what if the law finds out that I did this and then I go to jail and there's some sort of negative consequences? In other words, their conscience is not their guide. In the modern, well, I already mentioned that about heathens. Um, If you're working out of a new uh, NIV translation, um, the term sinners is actually in quotes. I don't know if some of y'all maybe use the NIV. The term sinners is in quotes, and that's an attempt by the NIV translators to try and show, hey, look, this is a label. This is a term that was used in the first century. You know, we think of sinners, we think of all of us, right? Paul says all have fallen short of the glory of God. But in first century Jewish uh, context, that term armatolos was used to refer to a especially wicked, especially uh, sinful group of folks. Um, Notice who's lumped in with this category of person. Luke reports that it was not just sinners that were drawing near to Jesus, but also tax collectors. Um, by first century Jewish estimation, there was no difference between tax collectors and sinners. 
If you remember, the land of Judea or the land of Israel was conquered by who? Romans. You see, that's where that came from in my brain earlier. So the Romans had conquered the Jews, and there were Roman troops that lived there and occupied the territory of Judea. Well, because of that, it cost the Roman government money to keep these troops there. And so in order to pay for those troops that were there, and as well as to send some money back home to Rome, they would extract tribute from the conquered peoples, from this land of Judea, from this land of Israel. Um, Tax collectors worked for the Roman occupying government, which makes tax collectors traitors of their own people. This is how first century Jews regarded tax collectors. They looked at them as unpatriotic. Not only uh, were they, were they taking mo- or working for the occupying government, make matters worse, they were also extracting money from their own people, their own countrymen, in dishonest ways. They would add additional fees, additional percentages, in order to line their own pockets. And so the tax collectors and the sinners uh, the, from first century Jewish estimation, there was no difference between these folks. They were preeminently sinful. They were especially wicked. Still in verse 1, it says that these folks were drawing near to the Lord Jesus. That is, they were getting an audience with him. They were interacting with Jesus. Jesus was going to meet with them in their homes. He was socializing with these folks. It says in verse 2, off to verse 2, that the Pharisees and the scribes um, were upset about this. The Pharisees and scribes would have been the folks sitting in church on Sunday. Right? These are the folks that were Bible-believing, God-honoring, conscience-minding folks. And it says that when they saw Jesus interacting with these amortolas, that they grumbled. They were upset about that. They were talking about it. They were having conversations about it off on the side. And that one, th- one of the things that they said and reason was, this Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. So in other words, there were these little huddles of, of folks, Bible-believing, God-honoring people, who were seeing Jesus host these sinners, and they cannot figure out why Jesus would be doing this. Is he just a man of low moral expectation? Why else would he interact with these folks? Doesn't he realize who they are and what their lives are like? And uh, is he just that, that blind? Is he foolish? And so Jesus' actions were thus perceived as improper, perhaps risky, perhaps even as condoning what the Bible says is sin. Jesus notices their little huddles taking place, and so he offers a teaching, verse 3, so he told them this parable. So the teaching is not for the amortolas, right? For the sinners. The teaching is for, the, for us, right? It's for the church folks. Um, and he tells them the story of the lost sheep, and then he tells them the story of the lost coin, and then he tells them the story of the lost son. I noted last week that there are a couple of themes, we've got a slide for you here, a couple of themes uh, that um, run through each of these three parables. The first theme is that there is intense concern for what's lost, right? So the shepherd leaves the 99, he, he goes out looking for that one lost sheep. So there's an intensity of concern. The woman who lost her coin grabs a candle, she's going all through the house uh, looking high and low, looking for this coin that she's lost. And then the, the same thing with the father. Uh, his, he's looking day after day off into the distance, hoping to see the silhouette of his son coming over the horizon uh, back, to, back home to their house. So there's an intensity of concern for what is lost. A second theme is that there's an intense joy or abundant joy when what is lost has been found. 
The shepherd, when he finds the sheep, he brings George back home. Remember, we met George last week. So he brings George back home, and he calls his friends together. He says, hey, look, let's celebrate. Uh, The lost sheep is back. The woman, same thing. She calls her neighbors, gets her neighbors together, and they celebrate that she's found this lost coin. Same thing with the father of this prodigal son. He gathers his servants together. He grabs the rest of his family together. He says, look, let's celebrate. My son is back. So there's an intense concern for what's lost, and there's an intense joy for when what is lost is found. Those are the two themes that run through all three of these parables. Today, we are introduced to a third theme that is not present in the other two parables. It only exists in this parable of the prodigal son. So let's take a look at that, verse 25. Now, this older son was in the field. So it mentions here an older son. You remember there's three characters in the story of the prodigal son. There's the father, who is representative of God, our Father in heaven. There is the younger son, who is rebellious. He's taken his share of the family inheritance, gone off into some foreign land, and really just blown through it. And then there's this older son, who has not been mentioned up until this point in the story. We don't know anything about him. So we're learning about him here in verse 25. What is it that this older son is doing? Verse 25, it says he's out in the field. That is, he's working, right? That's where you go to, if you're going to be out there, then work's getting done. I mean, he's sweat on his brow. He's being responsible. Now contrast that with the younger brother, what he's been doing. The younger brother took off with a third of the family fortune. He indulged himself in drinking, indulged himself in debauchery. He drunk in everything that the world had to offer. Meanwhile, older brother was back at home holding down the fort. He was keeping the farm going. He was mending the fences. He was looking after mom. He was looking after dad. He was feeding the animals. He was working in the field, out in the hot sun. He did all the things that a responsible, honorable son should do. Middle verse 25. And as the older brother came and drew near to the house... He hears what? Right? Music, right? And there's people doing what? There's a party going on. And he thinks to himself, I mean, it's the end of the day, right? He's coming home. He thinks he's going to get a hot shower. He wants a hot meal. Um, he's probably exhausted. He's probably the last guy in, right? He, he owns the place. He's probably the last guy in, out there working all day. And he's thinking to himself, he walks up to the house. He thinks, what's going on here? And so he asked the servant, verse 26, he called one of the servants over and asked him, what is this? What's, what's the party all about? Doesn't know anything about it. Verse 27, well, sir, while you were out in the field working today, while that son was beating down on your neck, your brother came home. And he says, your father has killed a fattened calf. Remember, the fatted calf is, I mean, that's reserved for very special occasions. And so he killed the fatted calf. And uh, he's ordering us to put a party together. Your dad's in there celebrating abundantly. He's intensely overjoyed by the fact that your younger brother is back home. Now notice the older brother's response to this, verse 28. You can kind of see where this is going, right? But he was angry. And he refused to go in. He's thinking, he's looking in that tent door, which I guess it's a big tent. I don't know if they had, well, no, they had mud brick houses back then. But anyhow, he's looking in that door, and he's hearing all the music, and he's seeing all the people dancing, and he's thinking to himself, what's happening here? Like, has my dad lost his ever-loving mind? Um, I cannot believe, I cannot believe what I'm seeing, that my dad would, would throw a party 
for my brother who's come back home. My brother has been the worst, okay? He has. He's been terrible. I mean, think about what this younger brother's been up to and how he's, what he's done to the family. He has been the worst. He's totally been misbehaving. What, and he's, so he's thinking to himself, well, what does a guy have to do to fall out of grace with this family? <laughs> you know? Dad gets word. Older brother's outside. Won't come in. Middle of verse 28. His father stepped out of the party and treated his son. That is, he was pleading with his son. And what is it he's pleading with his son to do? He wants his son to come inside. He wants his son to join the party. He wants his son to welcome his younger brother back home. What follows is a conversation between the older son and the father. The older son is going to raise his objections about why dad's response is wrong. I'm going to tell my dad why I think what's happening here is wrong. And then the dad is going to respond, the father is going to respond as to why his decision to do what he's done is right. And so we'll get to hear from both of these. Also, the older brother, again, is representative in the story of those grumbling Pharisees. Remember the whole occasion that's taken place. The fact that the Pharisees were grumbling about Jesus hanging out with these amartolas is what prompts Jesus to share this parable in the first place. So the objections that we hear from the older brother mirror the objections that are being raised by the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Verse 29, objection number one. The older brother answered his father, Dad, for these many years, in other words, for a long time now, I mean many years, going back into recent memory, even beyond, I have served you. So that's his first objection. He wants to draw a contrast between himself as the older brother and his faithfulness and how his younger brother has behaved and his younger brother's unfaithfulness. And he's like, Dad, do you not see that? Apparently not. Objection number two. In all this time, I never disobeyed your command. So objection number two, again, the contrast between the older brother's obedience and the younger brother's disobedience. Again, Dad, do you not see that? Apparently not. So we have two very different characters here. The older brother who's trying to help his dad see that restoring Junior and welcoming, welcoming him back home this way is not just unfair, but that this is foolishness. This is wrong. Now let me stop and ask you something. Does the older brother have a point? I wrestle with that, right? Because the older brother's talking to the father, and the father's supposed to be God. God can't be wrong. But does the older brother have a point? Is he right to question the father's judgment? To question the decision to restore the younger brother? After all, he's probably only going to do it again. How does this older brother know that this younger brother's truly repentant? I mean, he wasn't there when younger brother came walking up the road earlier that day. He didn't hear his heart of repentance. He didn't hear what he had to say. He just got in from the field. And even if his brother is repentant, should, he, should there not be some consequences? Should there not be some period of rebuilding trust that needs to be imposed here? It's at this point that the commentaries turn on the older brother. I don't know if you've done any, well, I do, but I don't know if y'all ever do. But hey, you've probably heard this story preached before, and whenever the commentators start to talk about this older brother, 
they really start to pile on. And they start pointing out in the text different reasons and different uh, points that happen um, to say, you know what, the older brother, look at this guy. Uh, he's just wrong. He's wrong in every way, the whole way he addresses this whole thing. So rather, though, than address the potentially, this potential indictment of the father for poor judgment here, rather than give any legitimacy to the grumblings of the Pharisees, rather than deal with their question, the commentators begin to attack the older brother. And the way that they do this, the way that they dismiss his argument, is by engaging in character assassination. So again, rather than deal with the concerns that the older brother raises, the objections that he raises, my obedience, his disobedience, my faithfulness, his unfaithfulness. Rather than deal with that, the commentators just say, oh, well, this guy over here, he's just, you know, he, he, he never, he's got all kinds of problems himself. For example, William Barclay, love William Barclay. But on this occasion, he says, and I quote, uh, talking about the older brother, he says he had a peculiarly nasty mind. There is no mention of harlots until he mentions them down in verse 30. He no doubt suspected his brother of sins that he himself would have liked to commit. I'm going, where'd you get that from? <laughs> he totally made it up. That's where he got that from. He's trying to look into the situation to character assassinate this older brother because he doesn't want to deal with the point that the older brother is making. How about this one from the Expositor's Bible Commentary? This is Lee Field and Powell. They write, and I quote, The older son's abrupt beginning, look. Everybody went. You felt like your dad was back in the room there for just a second. Like, as though that's the way he spoke to his dad, him saying, look, in verse 29, betrays a disrespectful attitude toward his father. Really? Anyway, the words, you never gave me, referring to, uh, he said, you never gave me a fattened calf that I could celebrate with my friends. Maybe his dad never gave him a fattened calf. He's, again, just trying to explain himself, trying to help his dad see. Oh, this is everything that's going on here. This is just totally wrong. He says, you never gave me, they say, whether true or not, shows a long, smoldering discontent. So reading some stuff, doing some psychological analysis there of this older brother. This is just some of the slander that's heaped at the older brother. The result is... And this is where, in my studies this week, I realized we're, 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 we're going beyond what the text, what the scope of the story, and we're going beyond the point of the story. I realized that in entertaining this character assassination, the problem is it creates not one lost son, but two. And the problem there is the father does not agree with that conclusion. Look at the father, his response to the older son, verse, verse 31. Here's his assessment of his son. He says, son, you are always with me. Does that sound like a lost son to you? He says, everything I have is yours. Doesn't sound like a lost son to me. Friends, the father appreciates the faithfulness and the obedience and the respectfulness and the hard work that this older son has brought to the table these many years. The father's not admonishing his oldest son. Neither should we. Nevertheless, there is something that this father desperately wants this older son 
to realize. It's something that the Pharisees of Jesus' day don't see. No one seems to be picking up on it. Remember, again, this parable is instructive for the church folks, for us. It's instructive for the Bible-believing, God-honoring, Sunday morning church-going folks. That's who Jesus is sharing these parables with. He's not sharing these parables with the amartolos, with the sinners, or with the tax collectors. These parables are intended for you and I. I say all that to say this. If we attack the older brother and then dismiss his argument, then we are about ready to miss out on the whole point of this parable. The third theme. It's not present in the other two, but boy, is it present here. Friends, the older brother's objection is, Dad, restoring this wayward, wasteful son, it's just not fair. Dad, he doesn't deserve forgiveness. Dad, he does, don't you see? He does not deserve mercy. And Jesus is saying, and that is exactly the point. You have missed out on, one, on an essential aspect of who the Father is. Your Father, yes, He's a God who's holy, but He is also a God who knows about grace. Amen? That is what this story, Jesus is trying, the Pharisees don't see that, right? The church folks don't see that. This older brother doesn't see that. He has gone through life not giving himself any grace, and he, he, he issues that same kind of attitude toward the rest of the world. Hey, look, it's a cutthroat world out there. And he's not willing to give himself any slack, and he's certainly not willing to give it out to anyone else. Jesus was trying to teach these Pharisees about grace. I want to close out this morning with a story of John Newton. I've shared this story with you before, probably not that long ago, but it is so fitting uh, to what we're talking about here today. And so let me share with you the story of John Newton. John, John Newton is the author of Amazing Grace. Here's John's story. John Newton grew up in England in the 1700s. He was the son of a merchant marine, a shipboat captain. At the age of seven, John's mother died. She had taught him to read and memorize scripture and had planted God's word in his heart. At the age of 11, he went off to join the merchant marine and he became a sailor. If you recall from history, the slave trade at this point in human history, uh, the African slave trade, was in its heyday in the 1700s. And John Newton was very much a part of it. He traveled up and down the coast of East Africa picking up cargo and carrying those captured indigenous peoples to the Americas. Newton would even go inland himself and help with the capture and help with the brutality, uh, separating people, dragging people out to the coastland to be loaded onto ships. Newton was a direct participant in these unconscionable acts. He personally helped with trafficking thousands upon thousands of people into slavery. It's for this reason that Newton would write, and I quote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He pulled no punches. He said, this is who I am. He knew what he had done. He knew the horror of his sin. His words drew the stark contrast between his vile acts as an amartolos of his day and the holiness of God, making the grace of God that much more amazing. One night in 1747, while heading across the Atlantic, Newton's ship was hit by a violent storm. He spent 11 hours at the wheel steering the ship. 
At one point, Newton cried out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. After the storm had passed and the men had made it safely through, Newton said, if there is a God out there who answers prayers like that, I want to know him. Newton would eventually leave the merchant marine altogether. He learned Greek and Hebrew. He studied to become a pastor. Got a couple pictures for you here. These are of his parish in England. Um, the church was in Olney, England, about 60 miles north of London in the English countryside. And there in 1772, while preparing for a Sunday sermon, Newton would pen the words that the world has come to know. Now that is not the end of Newton's story. Newton would go on to become an outspoken advocate um, for, he was an abolitionist. In fact, Newton would publish a pamphlet called Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade. Sold through so many copies the first week of its publishing that the publisher had to completely redo and create more for print. From Newton's descriptions, the English public <clears throat> became aware of the horrors and the atrocities of the slave trade. So his writings had a direct impact on uh, the abolition of slavery. He wrote, and I quote, this was from his uh, Thoughts Upon a Slave Trade, It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. End of quote. Newton would be the driving force and the chief encourager behind William Wilberforce and the eventual passing of the Slave Trade Act of 1807. The Slave Trade Act would bring England's involvement in the slave trade to an end. What difference does this make to your life and mine? Friends, it would be so easy for us as older sons, as responsible, respectable, hardworking, faithful children of the Father, to look upon the amortolas of society, those who are especially wicked, and see them as un deserving. It would be so easy to do that. What Jesus declares today is that that is not the heart of the Father. Friend, if you choose to go the way of the Father, there will be grumbling Pharisees. Doesn't she know who she's hanging out with? Doesn't he know who those people are? Friend, there may be some amartolos in your family, in your workplace, in your circle of friends. Let me tell you something. They are valued by God, our Father. And they are never out of reach of His grace. Maybe one day, because of your kindness and your patience and the time that you've put in, you'll be able to say over them, for this my brother, my sister, was dead and is now alive, was lost, and is now found. Let's pray. Most gracious God, thank you for just a fresh reminder that the people in our lives, the people we're interacting with each day, not a one of them is beyond your grace. Thank you, Lord, that it is amazing. Thank you, Lord, as Paul declared that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Thank you, Jesus, for instructing us today. May you continue to change and move our hearts 
to be like the heart of that Father. As we come around this table today, we're reminded, Lord Jesus, of your broken body and of your shed blood. What made it all possible. Not a one of us, not a one of us deserves your forgiveness. Not a one of us deserves your mercy. Yet, Lord, with your arms outstretched on that cross, you said to us, I love you. I want you to be mine. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Move in us, in this place. We pray these things in Christ's holy name.